Good morning. It is a delight to be here. Always a joy to be at the Houghton Wesleyan Church. And I so much have admiration and respect for Pastor Wes and Cindy and the wonderful staff you have. Just good to work alongside them throughout the year. And I just want to express appreciation for, for Pastor Wes particularly. I know I met with the board earlier this spring and just was hearing in the form of evaluation, although it, it turned out to be a praise session, uh, the many ways in which he is just really being a blessing to the congregation and uh, just a joy to, to see that. And, and especially on a college campus, a college church, it's, uh, it's, there's challenges in that. One of the challenges is constantly changing, too. And uh, he's been here 18 years, I think the longest tenured uh, that any Houghton church has had as pastor. I'm sure the church has gone through many different seasons uh, as this community has. And just I admire the, the grace that he has led this congregation through, particularly the challenge to continue to focus on prayer and to seek the Lord in whatever the season you're going through, that he will provide all that you need. And I know this has been a challenging season with quite a few uh, deaths and funerals. And for the Hutton family this afternoon, we're in prayer for continued comfort and and peace. But uh, Pastor Wes and the entire staff has just done an excellent job in really giving leadership, and I appreciate that. And and John, I think John, Pastor John was in the early service and... uh, congratulated him on getting his master's degree and it's good to see what God is doing in his life as well. So I come and in some ways I respect, I represent the, the district and I know that some of you may not be even aware of what the district is. So I brought a little slide to show you a map of the 34 churches in your bulletin. It says 33 churches. That's because we're actually receiving a new church as an affiliate church, Joy Community Church in Machias. Uh, is joining with the Wesleyan Church and the district, uh, actually at our district conference in a couple weeks. So we are partnering with these 34 churches, working together, really to seek God to bring spiritual renewal in western New York and, and in, our, in our area. And just to try to condense it down to its simplest form, I say we, we, try, to do two th- th- we try to do three things. Uh, develop healthy pastors, just cultivate, give leadership accountability for the pastor's and that, that they, because I believe that healthy pastors will help to bring about healthy congregations. And that healthy congregations will, will in turn grow, reach their community, make a difference in, in their culture. And I, I think they will in turn start other new congregations. And that's one of the things that we are partnering with the churches to do. A couple of years ago, we started Home City Wesleyan Church, which is now meeting in Chictawaga, has probably 50 or 60 people most Sundays. And uh, they also have a small group that's starting to meet midweek up in Niagara Falls with the hopes that this may become another congregation within the next year or two in Niagara Falls as well. The Wesleyan Church of Hamburg, our largest church, is starting a, a, a new venture, a satellite campus in South Creek, which is down in the Evans, North Collins area, about 15 minutes from any of our other churches. And uh, so it's exciting to see what this chapter, they're, they're hoping to start services in the fall of uh, 2014. We also just uh, are, are announcing uh, Steve and Ruth Strand are going to be what we're calling district missionaries or urban advocates into the city of Buffalo. Um, they have been pastoring in Jamestown or Falconer Peace Wesleyan Church for the last 11 years, done an excellent job there, but felt God leading them to this new challenge, really to reach, and their, their focus will be to reach 
the ethnic groups in the west side of Buffalo. Uh, there's a huge influx of, of refugees and even second wave of, of immigrants coming into the west side of Buffalo. And we're trying to see what churches are there already and strengthen those and where there are needs for new congregations to help those get started. So continue to pray for Steve and Ruth Strand as they'll be uh, embarking on this new challenge, uh, being missionaries in our own, in our own district, our own backyard uh, in the city of Buffalo. The message I want to bring to you this morning is from the passage that was read earlier in 1 John. So if you want to open up your, your Bibles to 1 John 1. It is dealing with the, the church. And this being the, the day of Pentecost as a celebration of the Holy Spirit's come upon the disciples and really creating this body that, that we now call the church. Several weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. And on Easter Sunday, it, of course, is the, the commemoration of a man, the Messiah, who died and was in the grave three days and miraculously came back to life. But if that was all that it was, we'd probably celebrate it, we would have a day, but I don't know that it would be as significant in the church as Easter has become. Because Easter is more than just a day when a guy many years ago came back to life. The Bible teaches us that because Jesus came back to life, all who are in Christ have life. That it it significantly impacts the way in which we live our lives today, that event. And so that is why we celebrate Easter. Paul said in Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on, on things above, not on earthly things. Because Christ has been raised, because we are raised with Christ, the very mindset that we have is to be significantly different than it would be if Christ was not alive. We live in a post-Easter mindset where earthly matters are not as important as the things of God. Paul said to the church in Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. You know that becoming a Christian is not just adding to a pretty good life and making it even better, just adding a little religion, another layer of goodness onto us. It is pouring out our old life, realizing its corruption, its sin, and and its hopelessness, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, being filled with this new life. Let me ask you, how has your life changed? changed. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, how has your life changed since Easter? Not the Easter 2014 necessarily, but since Christ rose in your heart, how are you different? I want you to, everyone to think of what that would be. And then a couple people just to share, not a long testimony, you don't have time for that. But within one breath, how is your life different now than it was before Christ?
We have meaning. We have hope. We have joy. What words come to mind when you think, how is, has God changed you? No condemnation. No condemnations for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. He's made us faithful. He is faithful. Jamie. You can care about people that you probably couldn't do in your own We can care about people that we wouldn't in our own right. I'm going to get back to that. Okay. We can love broken people. When I first read this passage, I'm going to read it in a minute, and was thinking of it through this, this what changes in our heart. Often, I think I focus on on either my relationship with God that it was broken before and now it's restored and we have a relationship with our creator which is an incredible, miraculous thing. Or how I feel, how I have changed. Maybe some of the habits, some of the things I'm doing is different. But these last two comments talk about that that third dimension of, of change and really the sanctification process is that it has to be outward focused. It has to be affecting our relationship with others. So let's turn to, to 1 John chapter 1. And, and follow along as I read verses 5 through 7 as John emphasizes this, this very point. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In this chapter, and really the book of 1 John particularly, there are two key concepts. One is a contrast between light and darkness. Where light is, is both talked about as, as a righteousness, as a, as a re- revelation of truth, as knowledge. And darkness is, is rebellion or ignorance. And so John deals with this and follows through what other Bible uh, scripture writers have, have used this, this analogy. John says we are either walking in the darkness or we're walking in the light. But then he also brings up this idea of fellowship. And you see this mentioned several times in the extended passage that was read earlier. Being in relationship and and both relationship with God, it talks about that, that vertical relationship with God, as well as the horizontal relationship with other people. And John connects these ideas of light or darkness and fellowship by saying that walking in the light is both having fellowship with God and, and it's not either or, it has both and, and having fellowship with one another. Such that to not have any one of these is, is to walk in darkness. And so he says this in the uh, converse way in verse 6. He says, uh, but walking in darkness is equal to brokenness in our relationship with God. Verse 6, he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. In other words, if you're saying I'm, God and I are best friends, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and I'm, I'm just, 
I love, love God. We're just really doing well. But if you're walking in that rebellion, then John is saying you're fooling yourself. You're lying. You're trying to deceive others. You're, you're putting on a front and, and you're, you're not living out the truth. For fellowship with God requires a change in our walk. It change, change in how we live. That the Holy Spirit that is now within us points out actions or thoughts as being wrong. And if we're unwilling to change that, then, then we have a, a stress in that relationship. If you claim to have fellowship with Christ, you cannot continually live in these sins. Because the disobedience damages our relationship with God. Now John is very clear. He's, he's not saying that we never sin. We, we all sin. Verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So it's not that we can somehow say, well, I've, I've lived a day and haven't sinned. Or I've lived this last year since I've been sanctified and I haven't sinned. John is saying, we do sin. But then verse 9 is the, the remedy, the address to the sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is wanting us to be open when we mess up. Not to hide it. Not to somehow justify it or, or claim, well, that's just the way people are today. That's the way we live. That's, that's just a new way of doing things. No. When the Holy Spirit points out in our heart, when Scripture reveals sin, the response that we have is, Lord, I'm, I'm weak. Forgive me. I agree that it's wrong. Help me to live a life that is pleasing to you. That is the relationship that we are to have walking in the light. Just as darkness comes from a broken relationship with God, John also points out that darkness comes or we, when we walk in darkness, there's brokenness with one another. And that it has to be the restored relationship. First John chapter 2 verse 9 says, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Now you, you could imagine this person that's saying, well, God and I are great. And, and even I've, I've got a handle of my sins. And I, even though I do mess up, I, I keep it pretty good with God. But they struggle in showing that love and compassion to others. Or they act out of arrogance or selfishness towards other people. And God is saying that that relationship has been broken. That, that fellowship has been broken with each other. And you are just as much walking in darkness if you're not in that fellowship with one another. Because the fellowship, the walking in the light, the, the life that God has called you and I to live is to live in fellowship with both our Heavenly Father and our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we get back to 1 John 1 verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We are right with our father. We are right with our brothers and sisters. This is walking as God has called us to walk. Now the word that John uses for fellowship there is actually the Greek word koinonia. And it's most often translated fellowship, but I, 
I don't actually prefer the word partnership because I think we've, we've, t- we've, we've tended to, to minimize or make too shallow the word fellowship. The word actually implies that which we share together. The common ground by which two parties are joined together. It is that which we have in common that bonds us together. We as the Christians are on a mission. We are purposely joining together for a cause that's higher than any of us. And God has called us to this, this partnership When Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership is koinonia. Our our bond together. That we are joined together in the spreading of the good news of Jesus Christ. We are on a mission to make disciples and to be witnesses of Christ. God doesn't call you to go out and individually change the world He calls us together to be salt and light, to work cooperatively, each partnering together. The book of Acts, right after the Holy Spirit came upon the church on the day of Pentecost, many came to Christ that day. And Luke describes in in chapter 2, verse 42, the commitment of this infant church. It says that they devoted themselves to four things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This koinonia, the fellowship translated here, is is put on this level equal to the teaching of the disciple, the apostles, the, the, the sacrament, and the prayer. It is not just a very light a sense of well, let's get together and if you, if you grew up in church you would think of fellowship maybe in terms of a fellowship meal a potluck meal that you would have after a Sunday service and maybe you have a fellowship hall in a church where the church sort of mingles together and it's trying to encourage people that may not see each other the rest of the week to to get together and spend some time together that is part of the fellowship but the word as is given here is is deeper the church is intended to be bonded together because we have this core common element of grace. The truth is that we share the same grace. Jesus has, has changed who we are and that therefore changes the very nature of our relationship with each other. Grace, of course, is the undeserved love that God shows for us And it shapes how we view ourselves. You can say, well, I'm going to go out of the service and try to treat people better. I'm going to try to treat people differently. But to change the very core of our heart from a posture of self-focus to one of sacrificial love requires more than just your your will. We need to let God get under the hood and and change the very way we, we operate. Change the way we view ourselves. If you consider how a more secular culture is teaching us who we are, you start to understand if we buy into that, that worldview, if we buy into that view of human nature, we're going to be selfish. 
the world teaches basically that we are evolved creatures, that we got to be where we are just by survival of the fittest, that we, we were able to beat down all of our competition, either eat them up or, or kill them, so that we got to be who we are simply by sheer force. And cultures that buy into that tend to, to minimize and, and treat the minorities in their culture as though they were expendable. The weak, the people that they think is different, they think as different, they just say, well, they, they don't have to exist anymore. So even Hitler's extermination of the Jews or attempted extermination of the Jews was in, in part a result of that, that view that we need to get a better culture by evolution. And so we sense that if that is the way you think of yourselves, then you can't just have that worldview and then stamp manners on top of it and say, well, I'm going to go treat people better because that's good manners. Because the very core of you is saying, look out for number one. Take care of yourself first and help others only if they can help you back. But the Bible says, no, we're not just going to put manners over a very self-centered heart. Let's let God change our heart. Change the way we view ourselves. Because the way God sees us is that we were created in the image of God. There's value in every human being because of the image of God in us. And part of that image that he created us in, I think, is to be in relationship. Before creation, there was the Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were in relationship with each other. And when he created humanity, part of that was so that God could have a relationship with people that chose to love him. He valued that will to love him. We didn't have to. We choose to. He created Adam and he said it's very good. But then he said it's not good that man should be alone. So we were created to be in relationship. We we were never to be this this independent force that's just out to to take care of yourself. We were created to be in, in marriages, in families, in communities. Now, we've messed that up. Sin certainly affected the image of God in us. And, and that's part of the redemptive process. It's part of the sanctifying process is to, to be restored in this image. But, but we, in our sin, not just historical sin, but in our personal sin, we're without hope. Without Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. And yet God showed that love, showed that grace for us. That when we could do nothing to help ourselves, he rescued us, delivered us. And that's the same for every one of us and everyone in this, in a part of the body of Christ. So from that perspective, what we may look at is some people may be more educated, some people more athletic, some people more wealthy, some people. So you, we, we have all these measurements to try to say, well, I'm better than you are, becomes flattened by the grace None of us would be able to, to have any hope, any, any joy, any peace without God's grace. And so the response to this is how, how do we live in light of that grace? Paul gives a passage in Romans chapter 12. The first, the first 11 chapters of Romans lays out the, the plan of salvation, the, the grace that God gives to us. And then... Chapter 12 begins the 
more practical application of this. Paul says, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in, in view of God's mercy, because of what God has done for us, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The sacrifice that every day we would get up is now lived for God. We are no longer our own, we are Christ's. This affects how we treat one another. But as I travel and see in the church, the church doesn't have the reputation for treating each other this well, and some of it is justly deserved. We end up living in a selfish way, maybe with some religious undertones. Many Christians are still living isolated, self-centered lives, and it poisons each of our relationships with others. Christ calls us to love, which is not primarily a romantic emotion, but rather a posture of giving, of wanting the best for others. Let me just briefly, in closing, apply this to to some of our relationships and how we live this out. First of all, I believe it's important in the home, particularly in the marriage, with those that are closest to us. In marriage, two people enter into what I've heard described as a koinonia of life, that partnership of everything. Mary Beth and I, like I said this last time I was here, we were married right about this spot now 28 years ago. And at first, it was the oddity was trying to get used to everything being ours. Traditions, checkbooks, everything was no longer yours and mine. It was ours. But, but that's the way God intended it. When, when Jesus taught on marriage, he quoted that, that passage from Genesis 2.24 that says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. As if the, the Bible writers were trying to figure out how is the way we can describe this unity between a man and a woman and, and the language is just inadequate. So one flesh is just like the best way we can describe it. But, but you get the partnership. Everything that we have is now ours. It's, it's fun to see our daughter Hannah, of course, is marrying Ben Murphy in less than a month now. And to see her go through this change from being a part of our family to thinking about the new family that's going to be created. And I was at her, at her apartment and um, had to check on her table. And she's just, I saw it. She said, oh, that ben, ben loaned me some money. And then she looked at me. Well, I guess he didn't really loan it to me. It's just, he, he, I don't have to pay it back. It's, it's ours, you know. And she's just, a, it's now, it's a different way of thinking. Because instead of just, just being another individual, they will be joined. And that's what marriage is intended to be. And when the New Testament writers describe the, the life of a husband or the life of a wife, they couldn't get much more sacrificial. The wife, well, first of all, they say, submit to one another. The wife, to love the husband, pour herself out for him, to, to, to submit to her husband, which some people get all uptight about that and say, well, you know, there's, but that's, that's just a life of surrender. They're saying, no, whatever you can do, your life is now lived for your husband. Now, the husband is even harder. If you look at scripture, 
Love your wife. Be willing to die for her. Treat her as if, you were, if it were your own body, an extension of who you are. And you see this, this partnership that happens in marriage. This is the Christian bond. And church, this is the laboratory for how we're to treat each other. I think it's very difficult for people that, that may struggle in their, their marriage because they, they're not really learning that, that surrender, that sacrifice in their marriage. They come to church and, and you're tr- supposed to treat everyone that way to, to some extent. And I think we have, there's there some people that may be great Christians have a blind spot in their marriage. But we look at this and say, God, help me if you're married to be completely joined, completely surrendered, that living as a living sacrifice, not only for God, but for my spouse. Let me secondly apply this to the church within the congregation. Because I believe God is calling them. There's, there's certainly a different context, but I, I believe the church was intended to live much more as partners with each other than the church lives today. God tells us to love each other, to continually seek out for the other person's interest. That koinonia, that partnership, is, makes the congregation an interdependent community, a family working together to build each other up and support each other. So that together the church can make an impact on our community. Many view the church in some ways as, as out to, to take care of them. Those on, even on Sunday morning you come to church and you're in some ways sitting back and saying, I hope they minister to me. I hope the music is the kind of music I like. I hope the preacher preaches a, a good message and, and short. Well, I've already messed that one up, haven't I? And, uh, and we've just, I hope it's just right. I hope people recognize my new clothes or, you know, comment on my new haircut. Or I, I'm hoping that everyone else will make me feel better at church. That's not the way God pictures the church. I've heard it described that some people that think of the church as a cruise ship. Have you ever been on a cruise? Um, my wife and I went on a cruise for our anniversary and just... When I first went on a cruise, I loved it. It was just like the best vacation. For, for like six days, they just, they fed you all the food you could eat. You didn't have to, to cook it. You didn't have to worry about the dishes. You just had to show up and they'd, you know, push food on you. you they'd clean up your room when you're away, just two or three times a day. They would make sure everything on, on board is just so that the, the people that are on the ship are, are all taken care of. The crew you hardly ever even see. They're just sort of, they just sort of make sure everything gets done. The captain is somehow controlling the ship somewhere. And, and we think of the church like a cruise ship. But that's not the church. That's a very self-centered view of the church. The church is much more like an aircraft carrier. Where everyone has a job. The captain has command from above and is doing their mission and everyone is to do their work so that the job can get accomplished and no one sits back and and rests we are on a mission church god has called us to make a difference to shine light in in a darkened world and i don't think we're doing the job god has called us to do we're not doing it certainly not doing it well enough and part of that is because we we look at each other through selfish eyes through that selfish mindset. 
Hear what the church in Jerusalem did when they first were started on the day of Pentecost. Again, it describes them as they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. God is transforming Jerusalem through these small band. Probably on the day of Pentecost, it started with about 120 and then several thousand and then thousands more getting saved because the church worked together. You see in chapter 4 that some had possessions, some had land. They'd sell it because they needed to bring it to the apostles' feet so they could distribute to those that might have been hungry. Nothing was their own. Everything was shared. Our job is to partner with other believers in this congregation. God gave his very son for you. In the light of this grace, we are called to change the very fundamental way in which we treat each other. From a perspective of taking to a perspective of giving. Lastly, let me just share that this also applies beyond these walls. It's not just the Houghton Wesleyan Church. It's not just this one congregation If it were, we might feel overwhelmed, and we probably still feel overwhelmed, but we realize that the church is different in different communities in different ways, and God uses all of them as one church under one authority to accomplish his purposes. One of the joys I have is to be able to speak in different churches, and I've spoken in a Chinese church up at Eastern Hills. I've spoken in a high school auditorium, spoken in New York City, or visited in New York City at Anthony Graham's church, Last night I preached on the west side at Grace Community just to see the the tremendous diversity among the church. And I'm realizing each of those churches will reach a different target group that the Houghton Wesleyan Church could probably never reach. And God calls different communities to work together. But we need to, to partner across racial lines. We need to partner across denominational lines. Whatever barrier the devil may be trying to put up to divide the church, we need to overcome. The church in Jerusalem, after many years, maybe maturing and planting out to start, starting out to plant other churches and other nations, went through a severe financial crisis. And in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is writing, I won't be able to read the whole passage, but he is taking up a collection to go back to Jerusalem because they are feeling... The persecution and the famine combined to create some extreme financial hardships. And Paul highlights the Macedonian church, said that you're not a wealthy church. You gave out of your poverty. But you recognized the need that another body had. And you sacrificed to make that need. I read several weeks ago of um, the Spooner Wesleyan Church. Actually, I left this illustration out of the first service and realized that the pastor of the Spooner Wesleyan Church was in the first, Wesleyan, first service this morning an old friend of Pastor West, but the Spooner Wesleyan Church in Wisconsin heard about the need for the church in the Philippines after the typhoon. And they said, one Sunday, we're going to take up everything that comes in the offering, not a special offering, the whole thing, whatever comes in the Sunday, we're going to send. They collected $14,000 and sent it to the Philippines to help the church in the Philippines. What an incredible story of one body saying, we have what we need. Let's help someone else that doesn't. We may not personally know the people in the church in Philippines or Sudan or Burma or Liberia or 
Brazil or wherever. But there's a bond, there's a partnership that we share with all who are in Christ, all who are partnering in the work of the gospel. And let us give. I believe congregations that give, God will bless. And God changes that very core of who we are because we're willing to help others. Let me close with Jesus' prayer. He prayed this, speaking of his disciples in the first line, but he's praying this to his father. So between the son and the father saying, I know the relationship I have with you. I want that same type of relationship to be with the church. Hear what Jesus said. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Would you stand as we pray? Father, may your church be one. May this congregation at Houghton Wesleyan Church be strengthened as we love sacrificially in our homes, throughout the week, and when we gather with the body of Christ and beyond these walls. Lord, may the church show this partnership, this fellowship with one another in such a way that we would be more adequately equipped to show love to the world that desperately needs to experience genuine Christ's love. Train us to love each other. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.